I'm so glad to be spending just a few moments here on this last uh, time together this semester opening up God's Word. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 24. And uh, we're going to be closing out the series that we've been in since Easter Sunday called On the Way. On the Way. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at a story in Luke chapter 24 that that took place shortly after Jesus rose. And if you've been tracking with us, you know what we're talking about. It's that story on the road to Emmaus. And, and you know how the story goes. Jesus rose from the dead, and he appears to a couple of his, his disciples who are on their way back home to their hometown of Emmaus. And, and for the first part of the series on Easter Sunday, we, we talked about this, this reality of how Jesus meets us exactly where we are. Jesus just, he, he oftentimes does this. He comes alongside us on the way, and he shows up and and he tells us, hey, I'm here, I'm walking with you, and he meets us exactly where we are. And we talked about the implications of that, that first part of the series. In the second part of the series, we talked about how when Jesus shows up, he will often bring with him hope. He will bring with him hope. And we said, as long as Jesus is alive, we can know with great certainty, unequivocally so, that hope is on the way. And so we talked about this, the reality of dealing with our disappointments in the area of hope. We talked about adjusting our expectations when it comes to hope. And we talked about becoming a people who learn to wait for hope in every season of our lives. As we come to the final part of the series, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that actually follows this account on the road to Emmaus. Uh, we're going to pick up at verse 36, and let me just remind you where we are in this story. If you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, just kind of here's, here's a quick snapshot of where we are. The disciples, again, encountered Jesus post-resurrection in bodily form on the road to Emmaus. And these disciples, they don't recognize that that's Jesus in the moment and later come to discover that the person who was walking and talking with them this whole time was Jesus himself. And in that moment, joy takes over. They are overjoyed. They're thrilled to have encountered the resurrected Christ, so much so that then they run over back to Jerusalem where they came from, and they gather together with the disciples, and out of sheer excitement, they run over and share. They spill their guts, and they say, Jesus is alive. He's here. And they, they begin to share this news with the other disciples. They share with them, we saw Jesus in the flesh. We saw him with our own two eyes. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 36. And so I'm going to invite Michaela back up here, and she's going to read today's passage for us. And uh, we'll also have the text up here on the screen, and we're going to be reading out of the English Standard Version. But go ahead and open up to whatever version of the Bible you have and uh, follow along with us here as uh, Michaela gives us this story here. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Amen. Thank you, Michaela. Friends, the title of my message today is, Where Do We Go From Here? Where do we go from here? You know, it it strikes me that in a very real and practical sense, many of us are asking that exact question at this precise moment. Where do we go from here? In in fact, we had our our spring banquet last night, which was an absolute blast. We had a ton of fun, ate too much food, and party too hard, you know, and it was a great time. It was an awesome time. But uh, we celebrated our graduating seniors. We recognized uh, our friends who were graduating, and, and one of the questions that we asked them in that moment was, okay, so where are you going from here? What's What's next? What's on the horizon? And they all share their plans on how they plan on adulting and going into, you know, post-grad and all these things and, you know, moving on to bigger and better things. And, and we all got a glimpse into where they were going from here. But you know this, that, that question isn't just senior-specific. It's not class-specific. As we end this year, many of us might be asking ourselves, okay, so what is next? Where am I going from here Where do I go from here? And and maybe for some of you, you know exactly where you're going. Maybe you're not graduating, you're coming back here in the fall, but maybe for for these next several months, uh, I don't know, maybe you've got a summer internship lined up and you're going to go and and work at this company. Maybe maybe you're you're going back home to be with family, to spend some quality time with family. And and, uh, over the summer months, maybe you've got a summer job, you're looking to make some money. Because after all, college ain't cheap, amen, somebody, right? Like college is, you know, college costs money. So you're like, I got to work. I need a job. I got to pay my, so, you know, and so maybe that's kind of what you have on the horizon. And still yet, some of us might be sitting here saying, I don't have a clue where I'm headed. I don't have a clue what's next. I don't really know what's on the horizon. Now, I don't know about you, friends, but... That's actually where I find myself for most of my life. You know what I mean? Like most of my life, I don't, I don't have this sort of crystal clear sense of like, I know where I'm headed. I know where I'm going. For most of my life, I, I, I'm scra- I find myself scratching my head on those occasional moments where I might have a halfway decent clue as to what's next or, or what my next step in life looks like and what's coming. You know, that, that, those moments come on occasion, but more often than not, I find myself without a crystal ball, without a blueprint, without any sense or idea of what is coming next, and I don't have anything telling me with great sense of clarity what is coming next in the days, months, and years ahead. And as I think about today's passage, as I look at today's story, this is exactly where these disciples were. They're sitting around. Okay, you gotta, you got to remember, they're sitting around unsure as to what's next. Because you remember, here they are in Luke chapter 24. They don't know that there's going to be an Acts chapter 1. 
You know what I mean? Like, they don't know that the Apostle Paul is going to plant all these churches, and they don't know. They're sitting there in that moment, unsure as to what's next, because you've got you to play it back in their minds and in their eyes. They just witnessed who they thought was going to be their Messiah, the reigning king, killed and crucified and buried in a tomb. And just when you thought all hope was gone, all hope was lost, Jesus shows up on the way. Which, by the way, I love how Luke recounts this story in, this, in the opening verse of today's passage. Did you catch it? We read in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, look what happens. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. Like right in the middle of all this commotion that's happening, right? Like all this like, hey, did you hear? Did you hear? I know. I didn't. What, what's, what's going on? Jesus is alive. Da, da, da. Jesus just appears in the corner of the room. It's like, peace to you. Like, well, geez, you can't just, you can't come up on us like that. You know, I remember one time I was, uh, my wife and I, we were, we had a date night in Harlem uh, at, a, at a, you know, and we were late to catching our train. So we we're running and running and running. And, and this guy in the street of Harlem, he's like, he jumps out. He's like, man, you can't be running up on people like that. This is Harlem. And it's like, these disciples, like, Jesus, you can't be creeping up on us like that. And he appears. He's like, hey, peace to you. Chill out, it's me. It's like, yeah, just take heart, it's me. And then I love what Jesus does next. He's like, after calming them down a bit, Jesus goes on and he asks them, so you got anything to eat? It's like, it's like what? You just, what? Is that? I love the sheer humanity of this moment, like the sheer human nature of, of, of Christ here. He's just like, hey, look, guys, I just, I just came back from the den. I'm starving. You got, you got like a granola bar or something? You know, just get, get, give me something to eat here, right? Now, this wasn't Jesus trying to be funny or, you know, trying to, trying to connect with them or whatever. This, you got to understand, this was Jesus trying to convince the disciples of the literal, literal physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. This was Jesus trying to prove the reality of his resurrection. He's like, see my hands, see my feet. It's me in the flesh. I am here. You are not seeing a ghost. You are not seeing a spirit. This is the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of the Messiah. Because remember, you, you got to remember, these disciples, they were caught dealing with some, some doubt and disbelief and skepticism. You know, I feel bad for Thomas. You know, Thomas gets a bad rap. Like, he's, he's known as Doubting Thomas, right? You've heard that term, Doubting Thomas. That's, that's one of the disciples. He's like, he, he was the disciple who doubted. You know, can you imagine the conversation between Thomas and John? John's like, you're the disciple who doubted. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, Thomas is like, shut up, man. Like, I, imagine being called with a nickname like that. I'm the disciple who doubted. But the reality is it wasn't just Tommy who was doubting. It was all the disciples in this moment were doubting the resurrection of Jesus, so much so that Jesus had to appear and say, give me some broiled fish and let me show you just how real I am. And this is not made up. This is not a ghost. This is not a paranormal activity that you're encountering, but this is me in the flesh. He shows all of this to show the reality of the resurrection. And throughout the course of this series, we've been talking about what if the resurrection was real? What if the resurrection actually happened? And what does that mean for you and for me? What are the implications of that in your life and in my life? And throughout the series, we've been talking about if Jesus is really alive, then dot, dot, dot. If Jesus is really alive, we said we can know for sure, we can know for sure that 
Jesus meets us. He is able to meet us exactly where we are. If Jesus is alive, we can know for sure that hope is a certain thing, and there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and hope is indeed on the way. And if Jesus is alive, the question that remains for you and for me and the question that remained for these early disciples is the same question that I want to present before you. If Jesus is alive, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? If the resurrection is legit, if the resurrection of Jesus is a real thing, like, where do we go from here? And Jesus seems to give us a clue in this passage. In light of his resurrection, he instructs us to do these three things. Wait, witness, proclaim. Wait, witness, proclaim. And these are, these are uh, I'm going to run through these real quickly here this morning. And he doesn't quite lay it out in that order, but that's essentially how it practically plays out in our real lives. Wait, witness, and proclaim. He tells us first to wait. Wait. He says at the very end of the passage, we're going to work our way backwards here a bit. In verse 49 of today's passage, he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city. In other words, wait Wait in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus' instruction to these disciples upon appearing to them is wait. Wait. Because, you see, you got to understand, Jesus doesn't want his disciples to just run off and start telling people about the resurrected Savior, which again is a bit odd because isn't that exactly what you want? Isn't that precisely what you're looking for? I mean, this is incredible news for these disciples. Like, Jesus is alive. He's here in the flesh. Go tell everybody. Go, 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 go put it on your Twitter feeds. Go call CNN. Call, call whoever you need to call and let them know. Go tell it on the mountain. Over the hills and every like, that Jesus is alive and well. He is the risen Savior. Now go. If I were Jesus, if I were Jesus, I would be thinking to myself, okay, guys, we're here. The moment you've finally been waiting for, I'm alive. Now go. Go out and tell everyone that I am alive. But Jesus, he doesn't do that. In fact, it seems like he's doing the very opposite. He doesn't say go. He says, wait, wait. Now listen, church, when Jesus tells us to wait, it's usually because he knows we're about to do something foolish. Like when, when I tell my kids to wait, what, like, whoa, hold on. It's usually because it, it's, wait is code for, now think about what you're about to do. Like hold on, think about what you're about to do. You see, for Jesus, he knew that the worst thing that these disciples can do was to run out and do things out of their own frenetic pace and out of their own excitement and out of their own strength and might and their own wit, which would have gotten them nowhere at the end of the day. Furthermore, once their initial excitement wore off, and isn't this the reality of many of our spiritual lives, once their initial excitement wore off, you know where they would have ended up? They would have ended up right back in that place of despair, discouragement, and hopelessness. Your human excitement cannot fuel kingdom work. You can get excited. There's nothing wrong with excitement. But it cannot sustain the work that God has for the people of God and for the church. See, Jesus knew better than anyone else that there was a fundamental difference between spirit-fueled ministry and man-made energy. 
You can have all the man-made energy that you want. We can, you can drink up and be hopped up on monster, you know, like all that you want. But the, there's only so much that monster can do for you that the Spirit of God then picks up and says, okay, okay, say your coffee's wearing enough. Okay, now, now let me show you real power. Let me show you real ministry. Let me show you real kingdom impact. The reason Jesus often tells us to wait is so that the Holy Spirit can do a work in us so that God might fulfill his perfect plans through us, but he can't ever fulfill his plans through us if we never wait for the Holy Spirit to fill us. Now, let me just, this is, this is so vitally, if we just get this one little piece for our faith journey, oh man, I think it would unlock incredible kingdom potential here on earth. The reason Jesus tells us to wait, and he will tell us to wait more often than you would like, Wait, 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 wait. The reason Jesus tells us to wait is so that the Holy Spirit can do a work in us. So that God might fulfill his perfect plans through us. Do you know that he has plans that he wants to work in and through your life? God, he says, wait so that the Holy Spirit can work in us so that God might fulfill his perfect plans through us. But friends, hear me. He can't ever fulfill his plans through us if we never wait for the Holy Spirit to fill us. That's why every time we gather, my prayer is always, Holy Spirit, come, fill this place. Fill us, fill us, fill us. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, you begin to see the byproduct of a spirit-filled community. Like, it just, just spend just a few moments in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, all of a sudden a, a fire is lit and the gospel begins to spread like wildfire in the community. People are repenting and turning from their sins left and right. Revival, I mean, you talk about Asbury revival, that was, that was, that was, that was child's play compared to what was happening in the early church. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking or throwing shade on what God was doing. I'm blessed. We bless all kinds of revivals, but revival of massive, epic proportions were breaking out all over the region because, listen now, when God starts a fire, there's nothing that can put that out. When God lits a flame, there's nothing that can put that out. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, wait, wait, because where we go from here is not about our work or what we do, our powers and our abilities. Jesus says, wait. Until you are clothed with power from on high. It starts with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Where the wind blows, we go. But until we sense the wind, we wait. And so for the first thing that we do, that Jesus seems to instruct us with, is wait. Just wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit's empowerment. But upon receiving power from on high, here's the second thing that Jesus instructs us to do, and that's witness. In verse 48, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. Now, I realize this isn't quite a, an explicit command, but this command is actually intrinsically built into what Jesus is trying to say here. In fact, in Acts 1.8, he mirrors this sentiment by saying, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Christ's way of saying, hey, guys, I'm calling you to be my witnesses. You know what that means? You know what it means to be a witness? It just simply means this. You've seen it, and you can't unsee it. That's what it means. That's what it means to be a witness. You, you, you've seen it, and you can't Have you ever witnessed something before in your life where you were there, it happened, 
and you saw it with your own two eyes. Maybe, maybe you were on the road and, and you saw an accident break out right in front of you. And as you saw the whole thing unfold right before your very own eyes, the cops show up and, and, and you offer a, your statement as an eyewitness to that accident. You saw it and you can't unsee it. You were there. You saw something. It happened. Now, there, there are certain things that, that some of us wish we can unsee. I, I remember the, the first horror movie that I saw as a little sixth grader. I had no business of watching The Exorcist. And I know I, know I talked about this before. But, like, um, you know, it, it, it scarred me for life, just period. It scarred me for life. And, and one of the things that just etched into my brain is this little demon-possessed girl head doing a full 360 rotation on her body. I'm like, as a sixth grader, I kind of wish I could unsee that. You know, like, as a sixth grader, I'm th- I, just, I just have these pictures like the lights go out and, I, and I'm going to bed at night and all of a sudden images like of this demon-possessed girl to a projectile vomiting on the priest as the priest is trying to cast out this. I wish I can unsee that. I, w- I lived most of my childhood saying like, man, I wish I can unsee that. There are some things that we could like, we'd like to unsee. But to be a witness, to be a witness means you saw it. It was real. It was there. You were there for it, and, and there's no way that you can unsee it. And for these early disciples, they were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. They saw him eat this fish. They touched his flesh. They, they saw him there with him. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. They literally saw the risen Savior with their own two eyes, and there was no way that they were going to unsee that. It's like Peter and John. You remember in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council to be questioned. And Peter and John are like, listen, you, 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 can, you can try to stop us. You can try to question us. You can try to thwart us. That's, that's fine, but, but you got to understand. We can't help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We saw something. It was real. and We can't unsee it. We are witnesses to the resurrected Savior. Now, let me, let me bring this home to us, okay? Now, as far as I know, after the ascension of Christ, after Jesus ascended into heaven, and, and, and uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says that he is now seated at the right hand of God, as far as I know, Jesus has not made any bodily surprise appearances in the flesh in my life, or in anyone else's life that I know, okay? I, 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 I've never had a moment where Jesus popped up in the corner and he says, Dan, peace to you. You know, I just never had that moment. I never, maybe you have. Talk to me after service. I'd love to hear that story. But I don't, I don't know of many people that have had sort of this literal, physical encounter with Jesus in the flesh. And so the question becomes, what does it look like to be a witness of Jesus today? Post-resurrection, post-ascension, what does it look like to, to witness Jesus, to be an eyewitness of Jesus? Is that even possible? For the record, I do believe it's possible. I, I believe if we have the eyes to see, what you're going to find is that we actually can see Jesus working all around us and many times working in us. In fact, I want to offer you a very simple question to ask yourself, and that's this. Where have I witnessed God move in my life that simple question opens up a whole world of, 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 of seeing Jesus in the flesh and moving about. Where have I witnessed God move in my life? That's where you witness Christ. This past Wednesday at our, our, our last midweek here, um, we had our annual meeting. 
and uh, we spent some time looking back on this last uh, uh, academic year, and, and, and we spent the whole night essentially bearing witness, bearing witness to all the different places where we have seen God move and work in this past year. We recall like, oh, there, there was that event where God showed up. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was that thing that we did where God did that thing, and, and there was this moment there that God did, and there, there was this moment. I mean, like, we didn't have enough time in the night to cover all the conceivable ways that, that we wanted to profess and bear witness to the work of God. There, there were all these different areas and places where God showed up that we ran out of time to even talk about. You see, I I think for many of us, the problem isn't that God is not working in our lives or that God is not showing up in our lives. The problem is when he does, we don't always have eyes to see where and how it is that God is working in our lives. It's like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had Jesus walking and talking with them the whole time, but they failed to see that it was the living Christ who was walking and talking with them. I wonder how differently we would feel about God's activity and involvement in our lives, if we just paused and we just spent some time witnessing just exactly how it is that God is moving in our lives. Like, like if, we, if we just prayed, oh God, would you open my eyes to see where and how you're moving in my life? Can I tell you, he will answer that prayer. I've seen him do it over and over and over again. Anytime the hand of God is fuzzy in my life, anytime the work of God is fuzzy in my life, it's not on God. It's on my ability to perceive his move. And so my prayer in those moments very simply becomes, oh God, open my eyes, help me to see, help me to witness where it is, God, that you are working in my life. So this morning, church, I would encourage you to grow accustomed to asking yourself the question, where have I witnessed God move in my life? And maybe even jot those moments down in a journal, like jot those, just, just keep a notes tab in your, in your phone and just jot those moments down and so that if and when you ever doubt God's activity and God's move in your life, you can refer back to those journal entries, refer back to that notes app and remind yourself that you are a witness to the living Christ. You have witnessed and you have seen God move in your life. All it takes is five seconds to whip out your phone and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw God do that thing. How cool was that? Just, just keep a running archive, a running list. And before you know it, you have a whole library of, I have witnessed God. I have seen God. I have heard God move in my life. And it's then and only then we can move to this third and final instruction that Jesus gives us, and that is proclaim. Proclaim. After waiting for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, after witnessing the move of God in our lives, we must take all of that and proclaim. Jesus said in verse 46, listen to what he says. He said, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says, Proclaim, proclaim. Now, before we go any further, can I just take 10 seconds to clarify what we mean by proclaim? Okay, when Jesus says proclaim, um, he doesn't necessarily have in mind, say, the Willard preacher, you know, like, and not, nothing against him, you know, but, but like, he doesn't, he's not necessarily thinking, okay, now, because I'm alive, where do we go from here? I want 
everyone to go out onto the streets, the highways, and the byways, grab your closest megaphone, and shout at people about Jesus. That's proclaim. We think about proclaim as like someone who's standing on a mountaintop and shouting to the world, Jesus is alive, Jesus is alive, and all these things. Maybe, maybe. I like to think about it this way. When Jesus says proclaim, he's telling us, tell the story. Tell the story. Go, go tell the story. Now, sometimes that might be on a mountaintop in large groups shouting from the rooftops. You know, some of you, to be honest, some of you might be called to do what I do, to stand on a platform like this and to proclaim the gospel. Some of you might be called to be preachers and pastors where you are, 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 are standing in, in front of a large group and you're, 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 you're literally proclaiming the gospel. You're proclaiming Scripture, and, 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 and I still believe that some of us are not called to that. And, and that's, that's whatever God calls you to do, wherever God calls you to be, it's not so much that whether you proclaim to the masses or to one, it's that you tell the story. You tell the story. Jesus instructs us to proclaim, to tell the story. But the story of what? What story are you referring to? Uh, let me just go back to the second point on witnessing. In the same way that you would recall the events of an accident that you were an eyewitness to, when you tell the story, you are recalling the events where you have witnessed God move in your life. You, you are telling the story of God. You see, your story is a story that is being written by God right now in real time. The writer of Hebrews says he is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. It's his story that he is transcribing into your life. And so then your story becomes his story. When Jesus tells us to proclaim, to tell the story, he's saying, tell people about me. Tell people about me. And, and, and let me just debunk this real quick. You don't need to be a seminary student or a theologian or a pastor or a biblical scholar to tell people about Jesus. You want to know one of the best ways to tell people about Jesus? Answer the question, has knowing Jesus made any difference in my life? Has knowing Jesus made any difference in my life? And if so, How? How has knowing Jesus made any difference in your life? And then you take that answer and you share that with people. You're not, you're not, you don't need to know, you know, uh, whether the earth that we're living in is, is young earth or old earth. You don't need to know the, the, the theories of evolution as compared to creation. You don't need to know, like, yes, study all of that. Yes, obviously, dig into all of that. But at the end of the day, most of us are frozen because we're like, I don't know the answers to that. But you know what you do know the answer to? how God has moved in your life. You can answer that much. I can answer that much. I might not be able to prove the existence of God. I might not be able to reconcile Big Bang theories with evolution theories, with creation theories, and, and, and all of these things. I might not be able to, but you know what I can do? I can attest and proclaim, I can tell the story of how God has moved in my life. I can tell the story. Answer the question, has Jesus made any difference in my life? If so, how? You share that with people. I, I, I'm, I am, uh, I've said this before, but I, I continue to be convinced of this. 
that the issue of evangelism in the church is not even so much the issue of methodology or approach. I think the issue with evangelism for most of us is we haven't even been able to answer the question, has Jesus made any difference in my life? If I'm not even convinced that Jesus makes a difference in my life and I have not given a second to think about how it is that Jesus made a difference in my life, what business do I have telling anyone about the difference that he will make in their lives? You know what I mean? Like, so, so maybe the first step to evangelism for many of us is not necessarily, you know, like it just, again, I, I don't want to sound like I'm like dogging on these other like approaches or methodologies. Like I, it's all good. God uses it all. Amen. Hallelujah. Like God uses anything. I mean, if you can use a donkey, okay, if he can speak through a donkey, he can use any broken man-made system. Amen. Like he can, he can do anything he wants. But at the end of the day, when I'm, when, in the quiet moments of my day, I've got to be able to answer for myself, here is why Jesus matters to me. And I want to tell you about that. Here's the difference that Jesus has made in my life. Maybe the first step in evangelism is for you to just take 30 minutes out of your day, take out a notebook, take out, take out your laptop, and begin to write out, or like actually articulate, not just pontificate or think on it, like literally write it out. Like what difference has Jesus made in my life? At the least as followers of Jesus, We've got to be able to answer that question. We've got to be able to answer, here's what kind of difference Jesus has made in my life. You see, when when your story becomes his story that he's writing in you, then you have a story to tell. But until then, we don't have words for our story. And so, so... Understand, when, when Jesus and when the author of your faith begins to write out your story, take notes. Take, take notes to acknowledge, oh, God, this is what you're doing in my life, and, and here's the difference that you're making in my life, and here's what I want to share about that. When your story becomes his story, you then have a story to tell, and that's what you proclaim. You proclaim his story over and over and over again because his story then becomes your story.